Let's turn our Bibles to John chapter 4 and the passage that we had read to us earlier. According to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, researchers from a pan-dimensional, hyper-intelligent race of being have constructed the second greatest computer of all time and, and space called Deep Thought. And the purpose is to calculate the ultimate answer to life, the universe, and everything. And after seven and a half million years of pondering the question, deep thought provides the answer. The answer to the meaning of life, the universe, and everything is 42. 42. The reaction. 42 is that all you've got to show for seven and a half million years of work? I checked it thoroughly, said the computer, and that is quite definitely the answer. I think the problem is, to be quite honest with you, is that we have, you have never actually known what the question is. You have never known what the question is. What is the meaning of life, the universe, and everything. I suppose many people are so busy to sit, they never get to sit down and think too much about the question of the ultimate answer to life, the universe, and everything. It may very well be that some of us specifically avoid doing that kind of thing. Uh, we never give ourselves a break from our cell phone, which I've left behind me here, lest I am tempted to look and see why it's buzzing in my pocket, or your computer screen or television, distracting yourself, yourself, ourselves, with work or sports or parties or hobbies or whatever it may be that keeps us occupied and keeps us from thinking about anything that is really significant at all. In this uh, chapter, we've been introduced to a lady, uh, the second main character in the chapter, and I don't think this lady is actually thinking about that question either. Apparently, there is not much that she needs. She doesn't need men. She seems to be able to get enough of them. And any needs she is aware of are normal, physical, material needs. She needs water from the well. That was a daily necessity of life in those days. She's come to get water from the well. She has a bit of a chip on her shoulder, and that takes the shape of a racial and religious tension. So when Jesus says to her, give me a drink, because his disciples had gone into the city to buy food, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And the brackets behind that are that the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And that aside... Uh, gives us an insight into the long history of antagonism between northern and southern Israel, going way back to just after the reign of Solomon, where the kingdom, the twelve tribes, split into two, the ten tribes to the north and the two to the south, uh, with Judah being the main tribe in the south. And then the fall of those ten tribes, the virtual disappearance the, of and what was left of them intermarrying with uh, the nations roundabout produced a kind of hybrid religion 
the Samaritans built an alternative temple on Mount Gerizim, round about the year 400 B.C. It was destroyed by the Jews in 129 B.C. because they claimed that the only proper worship of God was in Jerusalem. And later on, Jesus will say, rightly. The Samaritans accepted the first five books of the Bible, the Septuagint, the Pentateuch, but they did not reject, they didn't accept the prophets or the writings in the Hebrew Bible. The Jews considered that what they lay on, sat on, rode on, were all unclean. <clears throat> that their urine and saliva was unclean. That their women, like Gentiles, were in a permanent state of ritual uncleanness. You couldn't really get into a conversation with the women of Samaria if you were a Jew. That was the bottom line. And so there's an element of surprise, but also an element of prejudice in her response. How is it that you, a Jew, knowing what I know, you think about people like me, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? That's the tone in her voice. But there's more going on here, of course. Because there's a kind of background that you need to know to this whole picture, this idea of Jesus having to go to Samaria and there sitting by a well encountering this woman. There's a bit of a history to that. In Genesis 24, Isaac and Rebekah meet at a well. In Genesis 29, Jacob and Rachel meet at a well. In Exodus 2, Moses and Zipporah meet at a well. In all of those cases, the meeting ends up in marriage. Now, this meeting isn't going to end up in marriage, at least not the kind that this woman is used to, multiple marriages. But it is going to end up in the marriage we were made for. That is the relationship we were made for with our Creator, God. And at this well, Jesus is going to woo her, not for any ulterior purpose other than to make her into a true worshiper of God. That's what's going on in this story. And his request, his asking simply for water, spikes her interest. How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me? And it's in response to that, he doesn't answer her question, it's in response to that, that he goes on to say to her, if you knew, if you knew the gift of God... And who it was that was talking to you and asking you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Living water. Now, at one level, at one level, living water simply means spring water as opposed to stagnant water. So, at that very physical level, it would be clear to this person. At another level, however, Anybody who knows the Bible knows that there is a, a double entendre to the way in which Jesus uses this, because living water in the Bible becomes a, an indicator of God's being at work. So in the book of Numbers, in a story that Jesus alludes to here, Moses had struck the rock and pure water had gushed out, giving the Israelites in the desert life-giving, life-sustaining refreshment. And the prophets had built on that picture. They had talked about the people 
having forsaken him, the spring of living water, Jeremiah 2. Isaiah looks forward to a day when with joy people will draw water from the wells of salvation when the Messiah comes. And here in John's gospel, there's been water right from the beginning, the water of John the Baptist's baptism, the water that Jesus changes into wine, the water associated with the Holy Spirit in the birth from above, and now he's offering this woman living water. And you notice what he calls it. He calls it the gift of God. The gift of God. If you knew the gift of God and who it was that was saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She can't see beyond this social, racial, religious barrier, but she's intrigued. And Jesus, Jesus Holds, as it, holds her up, as it were, this offer, and he offers her the gift of God, the gift of God. It's coming from Jesus. He's inviting her to look to him. He's pointing her in his direction. He's, he's drawing her attention towards himself. If you knew who it was that is talking to you, then you would have asked of him. You would have sought from him, the one who came down from heaven, and he would have given you living water. Later on in this gospel in chapter 7, he'll refer to the, the water of life that he gives to his people. The wells of salvation that Isaiah spoke about. Well, I think behind all of this invitation of Jesus is the language of Isaiah, which is very prominent in John's gospel. And in Isaiah chapter 55, there's an invitation. Jesus or, or, or God gives an invitation. Come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters that your soul may live. It's an invitation to come to the Messiah. And although the woman did not know Isaiah the prophet, probably, she did know that in the liturgy of her own religion, the Taheb, that is the Messiah, what will come and when he comes, they believed, and this was part of the liturgy, they recited, water will flow from his buckets, the water of life, the spring water, the living water of God. And what this water means was fleshed out by Isaiah the prophet just after that invitation when he says this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. That is shaping Jesus' dealing with this woman. He is inviting her to take the water of life. And in the process of receiving the water of life, there are a couple of things that she needed to know, and you and I need to know. First of all, we need to know ourselves. We need to know ourselves. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And in knowing ourselves, there are a couple of things that we need to do. Let's take this and break it down. To know ourselves, we need to start to think. That's what Jesus gets this woman doing. I think she understood, I think she is beginning to understand, that when Jesus talks about living water, he's talking about deep satisfaction. And I think she was, to some degree, conscious of dissatisfaction in her life. I mean, she had been through all these men, for example. 
So she had tried all that, and she found that men weren't the answer. She kept on trying, and she now done a controlled experiment. Men are not the answer. That's the experience of her life. She wants the water that Jesus has to give. But I think she's still thinking. She's still thinking that satisfaction must be found somewhere at the level of what is tangible and visible in terms of relationship or money or material things or family. Perhaps that's the route that this stranger is going to take her down. If only we could lighten the load of everyday life. If only we could have something that solves the questions, the many questions that keep buzzing around in our head. When this woman came to the well, all she had been thinking about was getting water to drink, physical water to drink. It was part of the routine of her life. She never imagined that there was anything else or that anything else would happen that day. She probably wouldn't have understood what you meant if you said to her, you need God in your life. Sometimes we say that to people. You need God in your life. And they look at us blankly and they think, how do I need God in my life? Very many people don't even think that they need something more satisfying in life. Because even that need for the spiritual dimension doesn't appear, doesn't present itself to people's mind. Because the need, the spiritual need that we have in our lives usually comes cunningly disguised as a need for job satisfaction, a need for affirmation, a need for pleasure, a need for personal peace and affluence, a need for security, a need for love. It takes Jesus to get us thinking. It gets Jesus to make us to realize that all of those things which are needs, nonetheless, nonetheless are only symptoms of a far deeper dis-ease and dissatisfaction in our lives. Listen to Jesus again. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. People skillfully avoid thinking of their ultimate need by burying themselves in their work, distracting themselves with pleasure, or pickling themselves in alcohol. Jesus comes to explode that emptiness and to transform it into a sparkling fountain of satisfaction and joy. Jesus gets us thinking. And to know ourselves, not only do we need to start to think, but we also need to see ourselves as God sees us. That's why Jesus goes on from this kind of friendly banter with this woman to immediately tell her to go call your husband and come here. And Jesus does what you and I seldom do. He turns the conversation round onto this woman's immoral lifestyle and confronts her with her sin. I'd be scared to do that. You'd be scared to do that. One of the reasons we're scared to do that is because we know that we're sinners. We know that, you know, we, we can't bring up someone else's faults because we're at fault. Some of us are so aware of our own faults, so we're hesitant to do the right thing, which is to help someone else see that they have the need of God's pardon too. And that the, what Jesus is getting her uh, to, to do is he comes to her and he says, go call your husband. He, he's doing a bit of a sneaky one on her. Uh, I bet it stung. She may have blushed. 
Because the root reason for her emptiness was not boredom. It was sin. And Jesus, Jesus sees it all. Dr. Boyce, in his commentary on John's Gospel, tells of a, a festival that's held every year in Basel in Switzerland, a carnival called Fasnacht. It's always a time of riotous behavior in which the normally solid and rational and restrained Baselers let themselves go morally. And everyone knows what goes on, but, and there are even jokes about it, but no one knows who is doing what, because the revelers wear masks. But every year, the Salvation Army attempts to challenge people to a higher standard of conduct. They place posters around the city bearing the German inscription, Gott seit hinter deiner Maske, which means God sees behind your mask. Jesus wants us not only to admit our need, but also to admit our sin. We all have skeletons in the cupboard. We have things in our lives we can't even remember without embarrassment. We all have thoughts, thoughts lurking in our imaginations that would make us blush if somehow you could take those thoughts and project them onto a screen. There are things we cover up from others and even from ourselves, but we can't hide them from Jesus. He sees our deeds as clearly as he saw this woman's six love affairs, and he insists that we see them too. He holds them up to our gaze. He wants us to see them. To have this humiliating self-knowledge that we are fallen creatures, that we are spiritual bankrupts, that we are sinners. Because we, in a sense, cannot know God till we know ourselves. And that's not likely to be a very comfortable development in our lives, because we are not like God. We are, He is holy and we are unholy. He is good and we are not good. That's not to say there aren't some good bits about me, but I am not good by definition. He is strong. We are weak. He is love. We are often selfish, jealous, and aggressive. And coming into contact with Jesus is a humbling thing. As Peter said, Peter the apostle said, when he first encountered Jesus, the first time he saw Jesus do anything that was a really specially powerful thing, he says to Jesus, go away from, go away from me, Lord. I, I, can't, I can't exist in your company. I'm a sinful man. I can't be around you. There's a sense in which you've only really encountered Jesus when you felt like that, when you've seen yourself like that. Because coming to know Jesus means, first of all, coming to know yourself. You need to get to know yourself. And then, secondly, you need to get to know Jesus. And there's a movement in this woman's grasp of who Jesus is. And you can see this gradual introduction of Jesus and who he is. First of all, his, there's his claim to give living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Jacob was supposed to have dug this well. And uh, that was a celebration of it. This was Jacob's well. He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. If she had been respectful before, now she's annoyed. Does this Jew, a stranger, think that he is greater than Father Jacob? That well today is about 100 feet deep. In those days, it was probably far deeper, maybe the deepest in all of Palestine. 
And she's incredulous that Jesus should make such a claim. And she senses in his claim that he is claiming some kind of superiority. Are you greater, she asks, than our father Jacob? Remember, Jacob's other name is Israel. He is the founder of the race. Is Jesus greater than Jacob? Do you think he's greater? Why do you think he's greater? Listen to what Jesus says. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. You'll have to come back here tomorrow. Draw water from the well. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. It stays there, springing up every day to eternal life. Springing up every day, eternal life. Every day, eternal life. Eternal life. Eternal life. Yes, Jesus says to this woman, I am saying that I am greater. Greater. That my gift is superior to any other gift that you could ever get. The gift of God is eternal life. Who I am and what I'm offering to you is greater than anything you can conceive. Greater than Jacob. Greater than Abraham. Greater than all these great worthies in the past. Greater than them all. And this gift that I give to you, my well, my well of living water is superior to this thing here. This thing here can only sustain you for a day. The bucket you take home with water will keep you going till tomorrow lunchtime when you come back for more. But the water I give is eternal life. Eternal life. My children who drink of me never die. They never die. They have eternal life. Jesus is the source of living water. Life. Life in its fullness. Life that keeps springing up inside of us unto eternal life. And Jesus claims to give living water. She, he claims to be superior. And secondly, he claims or he acts like a prophet. He says to her, remember, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband. You've had five husbands, and the one you're living with now is not your husband. What you've said is true. Shock. Horror. Can you imagine? Like he knows the numbers. How does he know the numbers? This guy who's just turned up this morning at the well. This tired stranger sitting on the well. How does he know all this? How does he know? Has he been researching? He just knows the one you have now is not your husband. Jesus has told her to go get her husband as a test. And he's intentionally exposing her sin. He doesn't, by the way, do it to everybody, by the way. Do you notice? Only to herself, between him and her. But what he's doing, what is he doing with this woman? He is moving her towards her inner life. She, he's forcing her to deal with the inside. That is, with the secret places of her heart, of her life. The living water that he has to give to her is for her inner person, not just her physical being, her inner person. This is not about water you drink with your mouth. This is water you drink with your heart. He is dealing with deep inner reality and need. And she's holding him back. 
She's pushing him away. She doesn't want him to go there. Her heart is locked and sealed. Perhaps, perhaps she has been hurt over and over and over and over again, five times. Hurt. Her heart broken again and again and again and again. We don't know. Maybe that's what it was. But she is defending herself. She is protecting herself. And Jesus presses, presses into her heart. He uses the prophetic key to unlock her heart. The one you have now is not your husband. And the context of what's going on here has already been laid down back in chapter 3, verse 20, when it says this, Everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. And Jesus is gently bringing this woman into the light. She is understanding God sees behind the mask. God sees. And Jesus is pressing it, pressing it. She cannot open herself to the living water because her inner life is locked up against anything that might expose it. It's too painful, too dirty, too hurtful. Jesus, by his word, opens that locked door to her heart. Why? Because he wants to know her. He wants to have a relationship with her. And you see, the knowledge of Jesus we're talking about here has to do with personal dealings with Him. This is not about simply having a mind crammed with information about Jesus. This is a matter of personal involvement with Jesus. Knowing about Jesus is meant to lead to involvement of the heart with Him. Christian faith is what the French call an affaire de coeur, an affair of the heart. An affair of the heart. And we're not surprised to find that the relationship between Christ and Christians is described in this gospel as a friendship. Friends open up to one another. They become personally and emotionally involved with each other's concerns. The Christian life is about knowing Jesus personally. And this was happening in this story of the woman of Samaria. To begin with, she's just a woman. She could have been anyone, anywhere. But the story ends with this woman finding herself. Finding herself and finding the Savior of the world. Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. And the story begins with Jesus taking the initiative. This is quite crucial to the story. It's also quite natural. If you think it for a moment, of someone whom you greatly admire, perhaps a great uh, hero, somebody you hero worship, a great uh, musician, a great uh, artist of some kind, uh, perhaps a celebrity, and uh, who are you to go and initiate a conversation with them? But suppose they should initiate the conversation. Suppose they should come to you, start to speak to you, start to open up to you. What are they doing? They're drawing you into their friendship. They're drawing you into their company. 
And there's a sense of which no one could ever come to know God, the Son, unless He takes the initiative, speaks to us, lets us in. This is even more so with Jesus Christ when you consider the enormous gap between us and the Son of God. This is pictured here by the fact that she is a woman, a Samaritan, and an immoral person. And since Jesus is so completely above us, and since we have so completely forfeited all claim to his favor by our sin, he must make the moves. He must make the moves. He must make friends with us. He must bring us to know ourselves and then know him, making his love known to us. And do you see, do you notice this too? This woman comes to know Jesus gradually. When she first meets him, what does she see? She sees a tired, weary stranger. There's a movie coming out called Son of God. Someone said to me today that it always offends them when Hollywood feels the need to cast Jesus as a hot male. I have no idea what they're talking about when they say that. Of course, that's very worldly. But, uh, but I, I think I know exactly what they mean. Jesus, I do not think, would have turned the heads of women as he walked along the street. I think that's what Isaiah 53 is saying about him. He was kind of an ordinary-looking guy. I don't say that he wasn't compelling, that his eyes probably were compelling. But there's that about his character and the way he treated people. That would have been compelling and attractive, but I don't think he was a movie star. And the Jesus that she meets, we noticed last time, was not only tired, but he looked tired. He looked tired. And there was nothing on the surface to suggest that he was anything other than a stranger and a Jew at that, which she despised. But that first encounter was an insight into who Jesus was. This tired stranger was not only someone on a journey from Judea to the south to Galilee in the north. This tired stranger had come far further to reach this woman. The first chapter of this book tells us how far he'd come. He was in the beginning with God. He was God. He became flesh. The journey that the second person of the Trinity took to get to that well in Samaria to talk to that woman is an incredible journey of self-humiliation. We sang about it right at the very beginning. We read about it in Philippians 2. The self-humbling of the Son of God. The Word became a real human being. And now in the well in Samaria, we realize how far He's come. He's really human. Real thirst. Real hunger. Real weariness. Tired. And looking tired. He'd emptied Himself to become a servant. He'd laid aside His glory and splendor. He'd voluntarily restrained His power. He'd accepted hardship, isolation, ill-treatment, malice, misunderstanding, and would eventually accept death. First time we're told Jesus is thirsty is at the well. Next time we're told Jesus is thirsty, He's on the cross, dying for her sin. 
dying for your sin. When he's an extremist there. She sees a weary stranger, verse 7. By verse 9, she's recognized him as a Jew. By verse 12, she's asking questions about his identity, and she's wondering. By verse 19, he is probing into the innermost parts of her life, and she responds as she understands it, Sir, I can see that you're a prophet. By verse 25, she's beginning to, to join the dots up. In her mind, I know that when the Messiah comes, he will tell us everything. And then she's ready for the punchline. Jesus tells her what he has told nobody else up to this point, not even his disciples. He says things to her he hasn't said to any of the people that you would imagine, the people who are going to be the foundation pillars of the church. He says to this woman, I who speak to you, I, I am. The boldness, almost blasphemy of those words I am. God had said to Moses, introducing himself, tell them that I am has sent me. That's my name. I am that I am. And Jesus says, I who speak to you. I, I am. And he reveals himself gradually until he gives her this great revelation of who he is. No wonder she goes off and she brings her friends back and she says, the Savior of the world. Jesus reveals himself gradually as he does to us. It doesn't usually happen that you get it all the first time. It very often happens if you're exploring things or searching for meaning and reality and you're finding your way to Jesus that, that you will come quietly and over a period of time to grasping more and more and more. In fact, the rest of your life will be in grasping more and more of him. It's a relationship in which there are depths to this relationship that keep on getting deeper. Let me tell you this. I've been talking to Jesus, listening to Jesus, serving Jesus all of my life. And every day, it gets deeper. It gets deeper. Every day. It's a relationship that deepens as the days go by. Martin Luther says the first business of or, or describing this says this the scripture begins very gently and leads us to Christ as a man. And after that, to a Lord of all creation. And after that, to God. So we see him as a man. We see him as the Lord of all creation. Then we see him as God. Thus I come into it gently, and thus I come to know God, says Luther. We must begin at the bottom and afterward rise to the heights. Jesus says to this woman, who perhaps is not seeking, but needs to find, nonetheless, the meaning of life, the universe, and everything. He comes to this woman, He says, here's what you need. You need to know yourself. And you need to know me. You need to know me. Because he's after her. Not in the way she was used to men being after her. He is after her and intends to break through and give life and light to the very core of her being. And he's pursuing us. He is pursuing us all. 
He wants to awaken us by His Word and Spirit, and He'll do that for some of you. He'll awaken you up by His Word and by His Spirit. And He'll challenge all those addictive substitutes that you keep on drinking rather than the living water that will satisfy you for eternity. The Bible ends, you know, with an invitation. An invitation based on the invitation Jesus gives to this woman. Did you know that? Here's the invitation. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. It's free. Isn't that amazing? The whole Bible ends with the invitation given to this one woman. And it's an invitation to you. Come. Come to Jesus. Come today. Come right now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given to us out of your immeasurable love. You have given to us your Son, the Lord Jesus. And he has come so far to reach us, so far to win us, so far to draw us to himself. Some of us, Lord, have been playing with our toys, trying to fill the spaces of our life with all kinds of other things trying to push them in, trying to get them to fit, and they don't fit. We come to you this evening to pray that you would open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, our hearts to embrace, our wills to obey. That the Lord Jesus would become real to us, we pray in his strong name. Amen.